Dear Lord God, we thank you for your mighty works of bringing all things and us into existence, as well as bringing us into salvation uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless this time of, of uh, learning and study, that we might uh, be moved to awe and to worship uh, at the great things that you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, in our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come to chapter 4, chapter 4, which is titled, Of Creation. Um, it's a relatively short chapter, only two paragraphs, the first one describing the creation of all things, and then the second one particularly on the creation of mankind. But let me begin by reading Revelation 4.11, where it is said, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Um, This testifies to the fact that not only only did God create all things uh, and even bring them into existence, not merely forming them and shaping them, although he did that too, but he brought them into existence, and he did so by his will, uh, that he spoke and they were created, and that accordingly he is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, uh, particularly from the creatures that he has made. And that is something we should keep in mind as we look at the doctrine of uh, creation God's creation of all things. Let me go ahead and read the first paragraph of this chapter. It pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, in the beginning, to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. Pretty... A simple statement, and yet with um, foundational uh, truth, uh, a truth that is foundational to our view of the world, our view of life, um, that God is the sovereign God and one who has brought all things into existence. Uh, notice there is a, a distinction here between the creator and the creation. Um, on one side of the line is God and God alone. And on the other side are all other things. You know, God is not simply the the biggest and most powerful being, but he is radically different than everything else. He is uncreated and the creator, and everything else is created and not the creator. And notice that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are all on the God side of that line. Um, That scripture testifies that creation is the work of the triune God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, in Genesis 1, of course, is the um, most well-known passage regarding creation, or Genesis 1 and 2, uh, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Notice it says that this happened in the beginning, that is the beginning of time, uh, that this work happened, that God, uh, who is eternal from everlasting to everlasting, uh, created all things and, and made a beginning the world, that the world is not eternal like God is, 
that he created it out of nothing, that there was no substance that he worked into creation, but there used to be God and nothing else, and then he brought these other things into existence. Um, Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is uh, an important New Testament passage, one that uh, the Nicene Creed draws upon. And in that passage, the Apostle Paul is describing food sacrificed to idols. And in the midst of that conversation, um, is talking about the fact that, yes, um, idols uh, are not true gods. And this is what he says. I'll I'll go back to verse 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there be so-called gods in heavens or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Um, this is, of course, borrowing language from the Shema in Deuteronomy, that there's, you know, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, um, but that these terms God and Lord apply to the Father and the, and, and the Son. But importantly here with the doctrine of creation, that the Father is the maker of all things, and he does so through the Son, uh, through whom are all things. We find in the New Testament actually speaks much about the Son's involvement in creation. Uh, John 1, of course, is another passage that we looked at around Christmas time, where it says that, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So all things that were made were made through uh, the Word, through the one who reveals himself also as the Son of God. Um, Psalm 104 also speaks about the work of the Spirit. Um, that the Holy Spirit is, as our creed says, the giver of life. Uh, the breath of God is sometimes how he is thought of, as the word for spirit can also mean breath. <clears throat> In Psalm 104, verse 30, it says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Um, Now, I could contrast that with the verse before. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. And then saying, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Uh, That's especially thinking about the work of providence and continuing to create and sustain life, but uh, how much more in the original work of giving life to creation uh, was the spirit who is at the beginning hovering over the face of the deep, uh, giving life to creation. And so the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, are one God, and they created all things. And they created things, or He created things, for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. How does His work of creation manifest His eternal power? shouldn't be a terribly hard question. Think about how God interrogates Job at the end of Job. Are are you able to do this? 
Are you? What's that? Right, right. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Were you there when I stretched out the heavens and the stars? You know, obviously God's power is displayed by bringing forth all that we see and are. You know, that obviously his power is much vaster than ours. Consider the breadth of the heavens and how they just go on and on as far as we can see. God's power is, is infinite and eternal. But also consider how does his work of creation manifest his eternal wisdom? Right. The, the, the amount of uh, intricacy th- throughout this huge system that goes down to the little atom and the molecule and the cell, which can also be thought on the scale of the universe and the solar system and the galaxy, um, and how these things all fit together and sustain life on the earth, even in the midst of the curse, which now is added to creation because of man's sin, that it still is sustained in such harmony and beauty, um, demonstrates the wisdom of creation. And that's explained in in Proverbs 8, that that wisdom, uh, God's eternal wisdom was with him as he created all things and delighted in his creation. Um, And then how does the work of creation demonstrate God's goodness? Right. Yeah, he, he made it beneficial for us. He made it more than we needed, in fact. You know, he could have given us, you know, dry bread or, you know, something that just barely sustains our life. Um, he, that would have been okay, you know, just. But, no, he makes things incredibly abundant and enjoyable and good. Um, as Paul says in Acts 14 where they're urging these pagans to turn to the living God, the one who created all things. He says, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God has made his creation so that your hearts may be filled with food and gladness. Uh, it's a demonstration of his generosity and goodness, especially since these things are, uh, to some degree, continued despite man's sin and rebellion, that he's good even to the ungrateful, you know, at least for a time, that he's long-suffering. And that then is a good uh, segue into the new message then of the new creation of salvation through Jesus Christ, that that same kind and merciful God has revealed a way of salvation, which is not necessarily revealed in creation, but demonstration of that same goodness in God. So creation demonstrates his power, his wisdom, and goodness, and it's unto his glory, the glory of these things. Um, Notice it says, to create or make of nothing. In other words, make of nothing is uh, what we mean by create. Um, And uh, visible or invisible, Colossians speaks about this, not only all things created by the Son, you know, uh, or by means of the Son that are visible, but also invisible. Angels, principalities, powers, that he's sovereign over those things too. Those things were brought into existence in his work of creation. And this was 
in the space of six days. Where, where does that come from in the space of six days? Where do they draw that from Scripture? Genesis, yes, Genesis. Um, also, Exodus in the Ten Commandments uh, speaks of God's creation of all things. And in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. Uh, but in, in Genesis 1, we also see the creation in six days. The first day begins with the beginning, and you have evening and morning and day and night. Um, there's been controversies in the last, you know, last several centuries about you know, what that means within Presbyterian circles. I think the original meaning seems to be pretty clear that they say in the space of six days. They're not simply reflecting the biblical language, but speaking about the amount of time. Um, but within Presbyterian circles, there have been uh, certain views that have been tolerated within that phrase, and there's a study report that the OPC came up with within certain bounds. You still have to affirm a historical atom and you know, certain boundaries on that view. <clears throat> but um, certainly the idea that these were natural light and dark days uh, fits with the confession and I think was probably the original intention of the confession as well. But more importantly, I think that's what the Bible teaches, uh, that that is how God created all things. And notice it's in the space of six days, not the space of one hour. Um, that God, did God need to take six days? Could he have brought everything into existence in one moment? Yes. He could have. Uh, he's, he's powerful. So why did he take six days? Example for us to follow. Six days of work, one day of rest. Right. Is that what you're going to say too? Yeah. Yeah, he sets an example for us that we also work six days and rest, a holy rest uh, unto him one day in seven. And that's one reason why it's brought up in Exodus 20 uh, in the Ten Commandments. And importantly, this last phrase, in all very good. Um, God created all things good. There's no eternal principle of evil. There's no, you know, yin and yang that's eternally opposed to each other. Uh, evil and sin is unnatural. It's a twisting of what was originally good. Um, you also can't blame evil on things that go into man. It comes from the heart of man. What goes out of the man is what makes him evil. Um, you can't say, well, I'm a physical being, therefore, of course, I have to be sinful. No, God created all things good. You know, it's, it's our fault, the fault of the will of creatures, of, of man and, and angels, uh, that there is sin in the world. God created all things good. God made man upright. Um, his, and also very good in the sense that it was all well-ordered, that it was, it was complete, it was met with divine approval, created with wisdom, uh, his design was throughout creation, the parts, you know, fitting in with the whole. It was good in that sense as well, um, that it was, was well. And so that's the uh, teaching here of the first paragraph, the creation of the world. Any questions before we move on to the second part? And I was in shock. I was like, I thought Harold was 
<laughs> it's, it's true. We can abuse the things that God has made and use them wrongly, but it's not that the evil proceeds from the thing. Yeah, yeah. So the next paragraph here is on the creation of man. Let me go ahead and read that. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Besides this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Notice God created mankind last of his creatures, all right? So we're also assuming the order of creation events that are revealed in Genesis. Man was kind of a culminating work. Um, uh, presumably the angels were created before man. Uh, Job speaks of the sons of God rejoicing at the creation uh, work of God. Uh, so probably happened before that. But God created, after he made all other creatures, created man and he created man, male and female. We've spoken of this before, but there are two sexes, male and female. That's a good distinction that God uh, made. It's based on the creation of the body. It's not just a mental thing, but you know, he created man's body in one way and the woman's body another way. Uh, and that's really shaped their naming and identity. Um, both male and female are good. Again, all was very good. Um, in fact, it was, it was very good at the end. They're designed to work in harmony with one another, uh, with complementary strengths. There are, today under the curse, sometimes very rarely biological anomalies, um, but they do not overthrow this truth. They just make things sometimes more difficult for those people who have them. Um, but there are still only two sexes, you know, male uh, or female. And uh, that exists, that's a fact, and then we ought to live in accordance with it, you know, and, and seek to live in accord with God's uh, design. And that's revealed accordingly throughout Scripture then, uh, what that looks like. Also, God created man with, it says, reasonable and immortal souls. Do you know what? reasonable souls means? They can reason? They can reason, right. It means rational souls, you know, reasoning souls. Um, perhaps in contrast to animal souls, you know, as uh, I think Aquinas would make such, such a distinction, but uh, regardless of what you think of animal life, uh, the, the fact is that man was given uh, a soul, uh, that he is a physical and spiritual being, that he has reason, we'll find that he's created in knowledge, and um, this is a distinction that really becomes more apparent with death, and of course death was not originally part of the design, man was designed as a unity of body and soul, that distinction would probably not be so clear to us if we never died, but with the occasion of death, body and soul are separated, and the soul continues to uh, be conscious, it, it does not cease to exist, it does not sleep, it, you know, it uh, continues to have an existence and returns to God. As uh, Ecclesiastes 12 says, 
Of course, we could go to the New Testament as well. Today you will be with me in paradise, or the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But even in the Old Testament, this was understood. And the words soul and spirit uh, are used in Scripture uh, synonymously, uh, meaning the same thing, essentially. See if I can find Ecclesiastes. It's a small book. (laughs) I found it. Chapter 12. Speaking of death, in a fairly long sentence, so I won't read the whole sentence, but it speaks about death. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Um, and so the spirit you know, continues to exist, does not dissolve, you know, does not return to dust, um, but returns to God. And when it says immortal soul, it doesn't mean that it has always existed. This is not the platonic view of the immortality of the soul, but simply of after death, that there is a continued existence, whether in heaven or in hell, um, that there is a soul. And of course, these things are reunited in the resurrection, body and soul, the way we were designed uh, to be. Um, God created man also after his own image. Uh, Man is God's image. Notice it doesn't say his body was made after God's image or soul was made after God's image. Man was made after God's image. And this means two things. Uh, God, sorry, man represents God and man resembles God. Think of two analogies. Um, a, A son represents and resembles his father. Now, we're not the son of God the way Jesus is the son of God, but in analogy here, Adam's called the son of God in a sense in the genealogies, that we represent him on earth and we have a certain resemblance to God on earth. Another analogy would be that of a statue or a monument. You know, a statue represents the one who has erected it. You know, if you defaced it, that would kind of be seen as an attack on the person it's portraying, Um, but it also is supposed to resemble it, the person he's portraying, right? You know, a certain certain resemblance to it. There's also not, in every respect, a statue's, you know, not life, not alive, right? But in some ways, it is like the one that it's portraying. So, mankind represents God. We are his vice-regent on earth. You know, we show honor to God by respecting our fellow man, who is God's image. If we uh, murder a man, that's a horrible thing, because man is made in the image of God. But we also resemble God, or at least we were designed to resemble God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. We don't physically look like God, because God doesn't have you know, a body. When Christ became man, he became like us, not, not us looking like him. But we do resemble him in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And as we are saved, we are renewed after this image. And that's where those terms come from in Ephesians and Colossians, that we are being re- renewed in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So the fact that man's made in God's image shows us who we are, and what we ought to do. If you know a statue is someone's image, you know it, it, it's representing that person. If that image is defaced, it's still a statue. It just doesn't do a good job of resembling that person anymore. But, you know, uh, it, it still is a statue. But it needs to be fixed up. It doesn't resemble 
the person anymore. What it ought to do is, is image the person. And so as likewise, we are God's image. Um, even sinful man remains God's image in that sense. But we ought to, therefore, image God. We ought to resemble God. We ought to reflect God, uh, to reflect his character. And that's something that is restored through salvation in Jesus Christ and in our sanctification after the image of God. Now, while our first parents remained obedient, they were happy in communion with God. God walked with them in the garden. Uh, They had dominion over the creatures. Um, That, too, is part of representing God, of having that dominion. And God blessed man abundantly. They also had the law of God written on their hearts. Uh, They were made righteous. That was part of their character. They had a sense of what was right and wrong. They had the power to fulfill it. But they also... Uh, could transgress. They were not like we will be in heaven where we uh, will not be able to do wrong because our wills will have been confirmed by God's grace in that way. But they were righteous, but still with the possibility of deciding to do wrong, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. In addition to the law written on their hearts, we might call the natural law, uh, there was also a positive law or particular law about not eating of this certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as a particular test for them in the garden. Any questions here before we wrap up then on the doctrine of creation? I'm just curious at the end there Right. So it's not different in content than biblical law. Um, it's simply the idea of the law that is, the moral law would be another way to describe it. That it's, it's not, you know, the law to, uh, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You know, that's something that we ought to do now, but Adam and Eve didn't have to do, you know, or, um, or even the positive law of the particular tree and the knowledge of good and evil as, as um, a particular thing that was created uh, in addition to the natural order of, of things that they were obligated to keep. But I would say that the law written on their hearts, the natural law, is the same as what's revealed in the Ten Commandments, the, where the moral law is summarily comprehended. Yeah. And of course, in this case, it was also a natural revelation. It was natural to them you know, that, that they were created in this righteousness. But we are not the way we were created to be. And so we're going to come across then uh, the rest of the story as we look through the rest of the confession of faith. Man did not remain in this state in which he was created. Uh, but this, does, this doctrine of creation uh, shows us that we ought to worship God, the maker of heaven and earth. That it is the basis or one argument in apologetics that all men owe uh, obedience to God because he created all things and he's demonstrated his goodness and his wisdom and his power. Uh, it should guide us in doing science, that we do science with piety, you know, reverence and gratitude to God who has created and designed all these things. Um, it's the basis, the beginning of the story of redemption. You know, why do we need salvation? Because we sinned. Well, what was sin? Well, that's defined by the fact that we were created good and, and owed obedience to God 
in creation, that this is a restoration of what was lost, and even beyond that, a glorification. Um, that, that the earth and its fullness is, is God's. It's good to develop it, to, to in, enjoy it properly, that we can engage in, in producing culture and evaluating culture too. We have to distinguish what is uh, reflecting God's goodness of creation and uh, what, what remains even in a lost world and then what is sinfully distorted and corrupted by man's sin. Um, that it's not all one or the other, that there's usually a mix of those things as we evaluate culture. Just a little taste, though, of some implications of, of this doctrine. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Father, we thank you for your kindness and goodness that you have displayed to us everywhere we look. Everywhere we look, you are present, you are uh, the one who has created these things in you. We move and live and have our being. You give life and breath to everything, that even those who, who, who spit in your face are yet standing upon your hands, your power, who sustains them with the breath that they use to spite you. And yet you are long-suffering and patient, giving chance for repentance. And you have shown your goodness, too, in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ to save your people. We pray, therefore, that we might live to your glory with true piety and and the fear of you as we look around and see your goodness and wisdom displayed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.